Welcome to That's Lit, the Lightbox podcast. We're a venture capital firm based in Mumbai, investing in consumer businesses in India. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things consumption, culture, and technology. Our idea is simple. We love to learn. Come learn with us. Together, we'll dig into new ideas, new ways of thinking, and new approaches to solving problems from industry experts across various fields. We hope you enjoy it. All right. So our guest today is Irina Vittal. Uh, she has spent over 30 years helping both conglomerates and startups grow their businesses in India. Uh, she, her story and career trajectory are absolutely remarkable. And I'm hoping we'll get a chance to relive a lot of the lessons she's learned along the way. where we talk about the things that make you go hmm. okay Irina thank you so much for joining us today uh really looking forward to learning more about you uh which as I just mentioned to you as well is going to be not a very difficult task since there's very little about you online as it is. And so to kick things off, I wanted to begin with one of my favorite snippets that I saw in one of the articles we were reading about you. Um, while you were advising Mr. Biani and the Future Group, you also started mentoring um, his two daughters um, on what we would assume is just what the world is like and how they should approach it um, as founders, entrepreneurs, and operators um, going forward. And so I wanted to start off by saying, since you now have all this experience in giving advice to very, very young people, could you start off by telling us how you would frame advice to the next generation of Indian working professionals and entrepreneurs coming into this jungle uh, that we're seeing in front of us today? Well, I would say three things. One is never forget that you're optimizing life at the margin. If you have a job and a reasonable job, you're already in the top uh, 1% of young people in this country. So celebrate, be grateful and give back. Uh, second, this market is going to look completely different by the time you're ready to die. So learn every day. And third, um, give give to colleagues, give to others, because uh, the same people you meet on the way up are the people you meet on the way down. Wow, I could have been a fly on the wall when you're teaching those two young women. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, the, you know, one of the things that uh, we found, and now I'm going to try to use some of this back to uh, your your time at, at, Nestle, at Nestle, because you were very, very, very young when, when you joined Nestle. And so, as you kind of look back on this advice um, and at the time that you were there, one of the things that we found really, really interesting uh, when, when you joined Nestle was that you, you joined in, in, in coffee um, and other beverages, but coffee was core, right? Uh, was, was that right? No, by the time I left, I was looking at coffee. When I no, joined, by the time you left? Yeah. When I joined, I did 18 months of training in sales and advertising and then worked in food service. And then by the time I left, I was looking at uh, parts of the coffee portfolio. So coffee, you're, you're looking at coffee in a market at the time dominated by tea. And so it, it felt like us, like you were trying to look at, or your team and, and Nestle in general is how, how and we're going to use a word that we use today, but maybe not used at that time, overused today, uh, disrupt that market to some extent and kind of bring coffee into the market. Today, almost everyone we meet uh, in, in our job is trying to disrupt some market or other, or at least believe they were trying to disrupt something. Looking back at that time, uh, what, what were your kind of experiences about trying to get things done? And what do you think went right for Nestle and what, what experiments you were doing? Um, what, what maybe didn't work out as well? Well, Nestle is an amazing company. It doesn't think... Um, in, in the form of, it doesn't think in terms of years, it thinks in terms of generations because food habits 
change over a generation. Uh, and so I think the objective of, of, a, of the coffee portfolio at that time, I remember the coffee category was 60,000 tons of which I think the pure coffee, which was Nescafe was 5,000 and the rest of it was chicory and blend. Um, and there was obviously no out of home consumption in the North and the West. It was largely in the South and it was more along um, the small stores and, and roadside. So I think the objective function of um, Nestle at that time, which I think is perhaps true even today, was two things. One was to build the category in a thoughtful, respectful way so that it reflected how South Indians had coffee versus North Indians had coffee. And second, to do it profitably so you could continuously invest behind the category and the brand. Uh, the themes, perhaps, are still as true um, uh, 30 years later, um, but obviously the market context is very different. So 30 years later, like, I mean, we're sitting here, I swear to God, I think we must be seeing one new coffee chain coming up, like, um, in every month, if not even faster. Um, have you followed this at all, this this rise of coffee and and how it's kind of evolving, especially in the last five or six years um, in India. Of course. And what 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 do you think? What do you think is going to be a a core metric of success uh, for for these guys? Well, um, we've seen Cafe Coffee Day go from where it was to where it is. Uh, we watched Starbucks. Um, we've and quite honestly, at at Lightbox, we've been watching, like you know. 15, 20 coffee chains very closely. Just from your experience and exposure, what, what, do, you, what do you see um, happening in, in this space? And, and wh- how will the, what will define a winner maybe going forward? I think what will define the winner going forward will be two things. One is how do you keep product um, quality as you scale? Um, and second, how do you ensure... Uh, strong store economics as you build out uh, because eventually it comes back to this. The market will continue to grow because we're such a poor nation that um, we will, you know, every year we will hopefully be a bit richer and the addressable market uh, will continue to grow. Now it's a sensible player does not grow too far ahead of the market. Um, otherwise you're bleeding money. Um, and an even more sensible player always refreshes the brand and the product so that you remain both uh, good on, on the palate and aspirational as a brand because people don't buy brands, people buy pieces of identity. And to enable all of this, uh, you make sure that you build a format uh, that has fundamentally sound economics in a country where there's an economic shock every 18 months. So despite all the hoopla and the hype, if you're building a business, I think in India, these are the two guardrails. Does the next set of consumer keep coming to you because you're still uh, aspirational and the product is still good? And does your existing, your super users, if you will, you know, the 20% of guys who give you 60% of the business, do they still have a reason to be valued by you? Do they still feel respected by you? So what are you doing with consumers and product and retention? And what you're doing with store economics so that your like-for-like growth is higher than the growth in salaries and taxes that you pay. So actually, you know, as you look at buying an identity in a market, like you've mentioned, that is ever-changing, can you, do you have any examples of, of brands uh, that have been able to change the dynamic of of either their relevance or differentiation over time based on what's been happening around them um, successfully? Well, there are lots of brands. Uh, I think my favorite food brand is obviously Amul. Uh, It's still so cool and and chirpy and naughty. Um, And who would have thought that you'd have, in a category like dairy, you'd have a brand... Uh, that has survived and remained relevant um, over 40, 50 years. And remember, in a 800,000 crore uh, category, it's about 40,000 crores. So it still has a long way to go, but it keeps itself refreshed. Uh, if you look at the last couple of years, it's extended itself into 
uh, one of my favorite uh, extensions, which is chocolate, <laughs> which is lovely. But even the core brand is still exciting. And I'm giving you the most boring category, uh, which is dairy. And there are lots of brands like this. And, and the, I think at the core of this is to keep the same uh, identity, but to change the language so that you remain relevant to the next generation. It's not to change who you are. It's to change the, the dress you wear and the language you use. But the soul of the brand remains the same. And more importantly, to keep refreshing the product range. Consumers finally um, will come back for the product. They buy into the identity, but they come back for the product. So don't mess with the product. Don't, don't cut too much of it out and don't uh, overextend on price. And I think, I mean, I can give you lots of examples, but Amul to me is a, is a beautiful brand that has done this consistently and successfully from, uh, from an area which will never get private equity, right? I mean, they've done it as a pharma cooperative. Well, you know, when we look at India, a lot of times, uh, of course, the relevance and differentiation of the brand is on one side, but um, distribution and how we innovate around distribution is on the other. Um, and what we what we, we we found very early on in in um, our in our lifetime as a fund was people were looking at the internet as a as a, uh, a distribution channel versus having to go through Kirana stores or distribution that FMCG businesses had created in the past. Uh, are, are you seeing? Can, can you just talk to us a little bit about um, how you see distribution evolving or innovating? Um, or we, you see anyone innovating distribution in the in a manner that perhaps a hundred uh, over a hundred years ago, FMCG businesses were able to kind of help sprout Kirana stores in order to distribute their product more locally. Uh, so you're absolutely right that uh, distribution is often after you get the product right, the single most important driver of growth in this country is distribution and. A great example is seeing what uh, companies like Levers or Britannia or to some extent Goodrich have done uh, in the last um, four or five years where they have taken distribution deep into the North Indian states of uh, UP and Bihar and uh, to some extent even West Bengal and Chhattisgarh and got huge amounts of growth, right? And that's just by coverage. Uh, and by the way, the Kirana FMCG model was created in the 60s, not uh, 100 years ago. You were not born then, so I forgive you. But um, the, the broader point is that there is a, still a lot to be done in terms of covering uh, offline distribution. Now, online is, is very interesting. I think one of the interesting things you see in some of the D2C brands is um, since a lot of them are created for the top 1%, 2%, 3% of Indians, they do really well initially online whether it's through their brand.com or through one of the uh, marketplaces. But then something happens when the brand touches 7,500 pros um, of run rate. It's almost as if they enter a valley of death. And then growth after that becomes excruciatingly painful or it becomes incredibly expensive because suddenly your take rate goes from 35% plus, plus, plus to 48%. And the pass-through that's coming to your net realization is, is a ghastly low amount. And that's when a lot of the DTC brands say, oh shit, we need to get offline. And getting offline, even if you're looking at the top 10 cities, is damn difficult. So I think there are two different things that are, uh, under, that are happening as we speak. One is, it's very interesting to see that amongst the 30, 40 million consuming households, which is say about 160, 200 million people, in the top 40, 45 cities where a bulk of consumption happens, it's fascinating to see that search has gone online. And whether the search is for a cell phone or whether the search is for baby products or for apparel, um, research after research shows that almost 80, 85% of them will search for a product and increasingly for a store online. And if you don't win in that search, then you're not even the consideration set. But a lot of transactions still gets consummated offline. Um, and for the 5 million or the 2, 3, 5 million to go to 20 million, 30 million in terms of transacting online, I think we'll have to wait a bit longer. So I have a feeling that in India, the innovation has to be 
almost schizophrenic. You have to win in online search, both organic and inorganic, preferably organic. But then uh, you will need to be part of a broader pipe in order to also be present, if not in 5 million outlets, then at least in a million of them in the top 20, 30 cities. And therefore, I'm waiting for uh, aggregators and distributors to arrive who will take 20 D2C brands or 30 D2C brands, which are non-compete, and cover this market. That, that channel um, partner is still to be born and he will make a, he or she will make a ton of money uh, because a lot of these brands are ready for that expansion but none of them have the capacity to do it on their own do you think new d2c brands uh, that um, have now been coming up do you think that they should first sell online um, or do you think that they just need to advertise and be uh, um, searchable online, but should immediately be offline from a sales point of view, um, from a distribution point of view. Do, do you think that they should start purely online as a sales channel, or do you think they should be in both places at the same time? I, I think uh, being online initially makes a lot of sense, and it's not just for pure B2C players. If I was a FMCG player today, Levers and SP or Amul, I would do all my test marketing online. Uh, I, you guys were, Sid, you were obviously not alive then, but uh, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, we would do test market for... I'm <laughs> sorry. No, no <laughs> six months. Of, I was alive then, but thank you so much. I know in six months or nine months in Pune or in Vizac, these were the traditional pilot markets and it would take six months, nine months to see what happened and all of competition would turn up and see what was being sold. But today you could do it in six weeks and eight weeks uh, online. And so I think everybody will do trial sampling, piloting online. But if you really want to win and mainstream, you will still need to be present offline. Um, and the issue is who can justify the economics because covering offline has implications on cost to serve, but more importantly on inventory and collections, which a lot of small brands struggle with. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's sequenced. And the issue is really the economics of, uh, of rolling out into offline. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that you brought uh, brought up this how um, how people are are buying things um, uh, even today and and especially the the, the things that uh, the new distribution that opening up in in uh, northern India uh, one of the one of the things that I was really excited uh, to talk to you about was uh, the study you had done uh, on how half the world shops uh, in uh, I think while you were at McKinsey. Uh, which is also like some, uh, a couple of decades, uh, a couple of decades ago. And I think here we are a couple of decades later. Um, and I, I think everyone's still trying to figure out how half the world shops. <laughs> um, and I think one of the reasons is because it's, you know, perhaps it's evolved, et cetera. But uh, do you remember the study? Or do you, or? It was not a study. It was a journey we took over 12 years. We did it over 12 years, every 18 months. Years. Yeah. What, what 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 do you think as as it's as that's as, as the journal evolves um you know one of the things that uh, i i you know we 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 talk a lot about um internally is that you know jeff bezos said it's it's better to figure out what doesn't change every 10 years than what does change so people aren't going to want slower delivery 10 years from now etc um or, uh, or higher prices um, or, you know, or he said smaller selection. I tend to feel sometimes that I want smaller selection rather than tremendous selection. But uh, what do you think hasn't changed um, over this period of time uh, in at least from an Indian context? I know that this was over, you know, many different countries. Um, but uh, where, where do you think things haven't changed in the way that we shop? Well, lots of things don't change. I think... Um Countries are just at different points in a, in a continuum of uh, shopping. And many, many things remain constant, even though every country says 
I'm different and every category says I'm different. I think a lot of things are quite common. So what doesn't change, I think, is at two levels. One is um, supply creates demand because consumers have no clue what they want. Second, sec- the most important driver of uh, consumption is uh, is address is the income, the discretionary income, because you add on categories uh, depending on how much of disposable income you really have and how that matches supply. Um, and the third thing is that we have been seeing a steady hollowing of the middle in every single category because the same consumer goes value for goes for value on occasions and goes for uh, super premium in the same category but nobody goes for the middle so the middle is getting emptied in every single category and any brand that was born in the middle and stayed in the middle is is dying or is already dead and then when you think about how you make money um, you make money in all of these countries through the same thing which is you take cost out you differentiate and keep a very, very sharp focus on smaller ranges, tighter supply chain, and a price cost squeeze of one to two percent. And you keep your brand incredibly aspirational because a brand that becomes fuddy daddy uh, will definitely die. So a lot of things are are quite simple, and a lot of things are quite um, um, evergreen, and everything else is a lot of noise. When when you say stay in the middle, uh, could you could you expand upon that? The brand stay in the middle. They're, they're... So I'll give you an. If you think about uh, any category, right, and you look at price points. So let's assume you have a price point of ten and fifteen and thirty. What you will find over time, for almost ninety nine percent of categories, is that. This good, better, best pricing or this this range, you will find for the in the way markets are evolving, a lot of and in this, it's in the same household. You will find that people will go for the ten rupees for certain occasions, and people will go for the thirty rupees for certain occasions. But very few people stay in the middle at fifteen. And so, if you look at almost all categories, you're seeing simultaneous premiumization and commoditization. Simultaneous, often in the same household, because people buy different things for different occasions. So I'm buying rice. I'll buy super basmati when my boss is visiting, and I'll buy um, unbranded or you know packed in the store value brand for other occasions. I'm buying a soap. I'll buy Dove if I have a little baby or an old mother, and I will buy a, a three-in-one value pack. But the middle is getting empty. Similarly for tea. Similarly for ghee. Similarly for Chocolate. So a lot of categories are getting hollowed out in the middle, and one of the biggest challenges of a 30, 40, 50 year old brand is because it's large, especially large brands, they end up becoming averages because they're serving so many customer segments, and so a disproportionate amount of center of gravity of large brands is in the middle, and that's why they that's why they slowly die. So you know, it's interesting. Uh, while you were saying that, one of the case studies that I I remember kind of looking at was uh, Cadbury chocolate, and um, have you have you followed chocolate industry at all um, in India? Um, marginally, I mean they're, they're two and a half players, so yes. <laughs> I was going to say it wouldn't have taken much to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they, are are there brands that you think have been able to redefine? I was going to use Cadbury as an example, but I, 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 you think there are brands that have been able to def- redefine um, their premiumness um, or redefine themselves as a premium brand or as a you know a, a more uh, expensive uh, a brand um, over time uh, that surprised you? Um, in India, we have a terrific example in chocolates of what uh, Ferrero Rocher did uh, for almost three, four years. Um, I think it was in the late twenty nine, maybe two thousand nine to two thousand or two thousand eight to two thousand twelve. I mean, I think they really, really played such a superb game. I've not been following them recently, but at that point in time, you must have been alive at that time. But at that point in time. They um, 
a lot of it was actually with Big Bazaar and with some of the large stores. They actually reimagined the category. And if you went during festive season, you would have these huge displays of Ferrara Rocher. And because it was, because of the packaging and you know it's golden and all of that, it was immediately repositioned as a big gifting item. And those years were almost uh, golden years for Ferraro because they grew at a crazy pace at the pricing that they had, which was significantly higher than anything Cadbury had introduced. And this was, it was almost like it was positioned as the modern version of Indian Mithai and nicely packed in gold. And I thought that was a... So they put them as laddus, right? They put them exactly. like you would put laddus, yeah. Yeah, you would put in laddus. And if you went to a lot of people's homes in front of Ganesh, instead of laddus, you would sometimes see Ferraro because you could stack them up and they would look absolutely stunning. So I think Ferraro, whether it was... I, I don't think it was accidental. I think they had done a fantastic job of not playing by the category rules. They did not position it as a high-end chocolate, right? They positioned it for, they entered into the household through a very different occasion, which is what attacking brands usually do. And that damn product is very addictive. Um, and, and so I'm assuming that they retained their customers uh, for the rest of the, for a good part of the rest of the year. And they were a perfect example how in, in a category like uh, chocolate, you, you had an attacker who came in at a significantly higher price point and repositioned themselves completely. It can, it, do you think uh, one of the issues we face, uh, so Ferrero Rocher is obviously um, a foreign brand um, for all the distribution they've done and the branding, the quality, and which is something you brought up at the beginning of this podcast, um, is of a very high standard um, and which is why, like you said, they retain their customers. Um, is there, uh, do you feel like these, this quality of product um, can come out of India as well for some of these, uh, for some, these brands? For some you of these are going, yeah, you're going to be accused of being a racist if you don't stop. I'm not, I'm Indian. I, I'm no, Indian. I can I, say anything about India. I can ask. No, because I see, I, I see a lot of quality. Uh, I mean, I see a lot of products in India that that do really well that we think are Indian. Like I thought, Bata for many years was an Indian product, but isn't Indian. They, they come from somewhere else, and they do very well over here by Indianizing themselves. And we think that they're Indian. Um, I, the other day, I was, you know, I was actually literally having a conversation with someone. Uh, he's forty five years old. He thought jockey was Indian. And I said, no, <laughs> um, but do you feel like at times that, and I, I feel like things are changing, uh, people are using less shortcuts. And so the quality of products today are very young, under 100 crore brands um, in the market. The quality of a lot of them are just unbelievable um, across, and I'm talking about F, like, uh, direct to consumer food and other uh, fast moving consumer products um uh, goods uh companies uh that have come up uh have really improved but do you, do you feel like some of these brands have done really well here because we haven't been able to compete on product quality i mean i don't think product quality is linked to a uh, state of origin i think product quality is linked to two things it's linked to mindset um, if you want good quality you're, and you're willing to pay for it, you have good quality. And second, how much you invest in your uh, supply chain, because a lot of quality is actually defined by the weakest link in your chain. And sometimes that's not within the legal boundaries of your business. It's uh, somewhere down the line on supply chain. So I don't think uh, foreign, first of all, your point is absolutely right. And all the work we've done with consumers across the world no consumer knows which is a global brand and which is a local brand. In India, I remember there was a shirt brand called Jack London and it was seen to be a foreign brand. It belonged to a local Indian player where Lux or Lifeboy uh, will be seen as an Indian brand uh, or Surf because people have forgotten or Nescafe. People will think Nescafe is an Indian brand. Chinese, right. a lot of Chinese consumers think Coke is a Chinese uh, brand because they've grown up with it, right? So, Consumers don't know. Uh, they associate words um, and, and uh, origin and, and familiarity with uh, origin, but they don't know based on legal uh, jurisdiction. So I think 
I don't think brands win or lose. I think perception of quality and real quality is heightened when it is a high involvement category. So it could be baby food or it could be diamonds or it could be, um, you know, uh, uh, the doctor for, for a uh, cancer treatment. At these, at these moments, you are more bothered about quality. But I don't think there's any correlation between origin of company and uh, extent of quality. I think the correlation is whether the owner cares um, and it's, it's a matter of pride or not and whether they invest in uh, the weakest part of their supply chain. It is, do you feel like um, the quality of the, uh, the ability to develop a strong supply chain across majority of consumer products today is well established in India? Um, do you think that there are areas that one needs to kind of work on? I, I know cold, cold chain, we've struggled with um, in companies in our portfolio, for example, um, and companies we've also looked at. But in general, how, how do you see that playing out in India right now? Is, is that, is, do, I know back in the day, it must have been, you know, there are issues. And so one can't move forward as a result or build their own supply chain. But today, is that also an issue? I think it's an issue um, everywhere. And it's becoming a bigger issue because of uh, the, the importance now to uh, trace back to origin, right? And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But in, in India or in China or any of the emerging countries, it's, it's fixable. There are um, millions of case studies of people who got good quality out of these countries. You just need to invest capacity at the right place. So if you have a third-party manufacturer, good companies will have the quality control guy uh, on their books and he's placed 100% of the time in the store. You don't do random testing of five out of a million pieces. Your guy is working in that factory uh, through every possible shift and he's on your books. He's not on their books. Um, you have a guy who's manufacturing small screws that go into your watches. You make sure that you have quality control on the lathe machine that they use and you will do surprise audits. So if you look at how companies have managed this, because don't forget in emerging markets, a lot of supply chain is also outsourced. Um, and um, right. people, despite this, managed to get great quality by ensuring they have um, right specifications. First of all, by ensuring that they have people in their ecosystem who are like-minded on quality and are not transactional. Second, by making sure specifications are completely aligned with how you pay people, how you pay your partners. Third, by making sure your commercial capability is twice as large as your financial capability, which means you have twice as many people in commercial contracting, supply chain management, as you have in accounting and treasury management. And, and fourth, by making sure that you have make a checker and you trust that you verify it. So these are protocols that... Um, multinationals and Indian companies have perfected over the last 40 years. And anybody who says quality in India cannot be done is fooling himself because it, it can be done. You just need to invest behind it and have protocols. No, absolutely. I, uh, that's Actually, thank you so much for taking us through that part. I, I really, it's, it's really refreshing to kind of hear in the kind of detail that you did. Um, why it's possible uh, and um and i think i i wish we had another podcast just for to kind of walk through some of that in more detail uh but i'm gonna leave that that part there i, I know we have limited time i wanted to ask you two two more thematic kind of questions one i've been i, I really wanted to ask you what you think the future of supermarkets is um in our country um and and where do you think um, it, where do you think it goes? And I, I've been I've been wanting to bring back your lessons, but you know, you, one of your lessons is off to le learn every day. So, and I'm sure your starting point of understanding supermarkets is probably better than almost anyone else in our country today, um, uh, along with department stores. But um, as you've been learning every day on 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 this particular uh, aspect of uh, Indian Indian consumers and and uh, consumer understanding. Where, where do you think we're going? Uh, where, where do you think 
supermarkets will play a role going forward and, and in which way, in what way in our lives in, in India? Yeah. yeah. So first of all, help me understand what your definition of a supermarket is, because there's so many of them, right? So when you say a supermarket, what's that a short code for? So I was thinking of uh, stores where, you know, we would buy everyday products. Um, no, no, no. But is it a 3,000 square foot store, an 8,000 square foot uh, store? Of- no, 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 no. I would say it's, at, at, you know, 8,000 plus. So 8,000 to 40,000 to 100,000. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So which, is, which in, in Indian parlance would be more of a hypermarket, right? Hypermarket, um, sure. Yeah, I think think that format will continue to exist. Um, It might shrink in size as it becomes more omni and you might have more space for curbside pickup and for home delivery and for exchange and all of that. But that format is is definitely here to stay. I I don't see a, a demise of that format because it plays a huge role in in material shopping occasions uh, of the family. I think the foolish mistake uh, some players make is that in smaller towns, because rental is lower, they expand larger stores when they actually should be opening smaller stores because the sales per square foot does not increase, right? So as long as you don't fall into ego traps of that kind, uh, and as long as these get smaller and smaller over time, uh, both because of technology and certain shopping occasions going omni, I think that format will continue to exist. Now, how quickly they evolve into a HEMA version, which Alibaba is proving in China, or the Amazon Go version um, that is uh, proving out to be true in the US, and I think they've opened the first one in London, is really a question of, uh, you know, the capital labor trade-off, as well as uh, mass scale penetration of uh, of uh, purchasing, uh, comfort with uh, online purchase. But that format will definitely stay. The smaller formats have always struggled because of the MRP. What most people forget is that when you're a small store and an organized store with all the costs of a large store, like the 7-Eleven, you always struggle in India because a disproportionate amount of um, your range is unbranded where you have no price premium. And a disproportionate amount of Quick pickup, emergency pickup is all MRP products on which you can't charge a premium for proximity. Everywhere else in the world, if you're next to my house, you charge a premium for proximity. But here, MRP prevents you from doing that. So the small format organized has always been endangered till PL, till private label replaces the MRP ranges. But the you know, 20,000, 40,000 square foot store or the 120,000 square foot store, I think will continue to exist in a different avatar. Do you think that the small, uh, the, the, the small organized store uh, could eventually evolve into perhaps dark stores that just do delivery in a manner that maybe restaurants are doing now and not have to be, it can still be close to you, but not paying the kind of rent it might be on a main road um, and therefore have the margins of uh, come back into even an MRP pricing? Yeah, we, we are already seeing that. I mean, in several cities, including, but not only Bangalore, we're seeing in some of the most um, highly penetrated uh, catchments for online, we've seen the birth of dark stores uh, over the last two, three years. And you have anywhere between 5,000 to 6,000 SKUs, their daily replenishment three or four times in the day, and they work like magic because you can you can now meet your SLA for the slots uh, that you have in, in dense neighborhoods. So that is that has already happened in Gurgaon, in Bangalore, in parts of Chennai, in parts of Ahmedabad. Um, but they're not going to, but uh, to your point, they're not going to be on the neighborhood high street. They're going to be inside because the rental there will be abysmally low, right? And so uh, that will happen. But remember, we have mixed neighborhoods. And so those kinds of rich uh, neighborhoods are few and far between and may they continue to grow. But a lot of others are mixed neighborhoods. And so you will continue to see the local Kirana. He'll become a lot smarter. He will do a, continue to do a lot more of home delivery. But I find it difficult to believe that branded 7-Eleven kind of stores will survive or will replace these Kiranas. I think we'll either see the Kiranas or you'll see 
uh, dark stores or you'll see large stores, but not necessarily. We're never going to be a Tokyo in terms of right. uh, aggregated uh, supermarket uh, or small store um, organized retail chains. That's not going to happen. So you know, we hear a lot about how you know Kiranas will survive, and I, I agree with you; they will. Uh, are there things that we, uh, you know, from a from an industry standpoint, um, or uh, that that is missing today that will help Kiranas thrive? Um, <laughs> and is is there something that because we see a lot of people trying to do a lot of things for Kiranas, but they're doing it so that they can get something out of the Kirana as well, uh, outside of money. Uh, you know, whether it's data so they can give them more loans or they can give the consumer that's coming in more loans or data back to the FMCGs. But is there something that you feel is inherently missing um, that will really help empower local stores? You know, the reason for death of local stores has nothing to do with uh, POS or with range or with private label. It has to do with two things. The, the kids... The owner's kid gets educated and doesn't want to sit in a store. So the education of the child of the current Tirana guy uh, makes it non-cool. And therefore, you see this, for example, in apparel, where a whole, bun- a whole bunch of multi-brand outlets in smaller cities have now become uh, exclusive brand outlets of larger brands because the child who got educated is more comfortable sitting in an air-conditioned store which has a big brand name outside and which has a uh, closed door so that he looks cool amongst, you know, in, in his gang rather than sitting in a multi-brand outlet with thans and with unbranded stuff. So it's the generational shift of the owner who was uneducated, very comfortable sitting as a panwadi versus his son uh, who doesn't want to do that or daughter. Uh, and the second thing is the um, replacement or the alternate value of the land that he owns. And in a lot of places, it might be on Pagri, it might be a piece of land plot that he loans, but he, the, the alternate revenue that he gets is uh, becoming occasionally more exciting to him than what he makes in this store. Uh, especially as a lot of these stores have mundus who are paid below minimum wage and who, you know, sleep literally on top of the store or on top of the than in the store and stuff. So as, as some of that labor is vanishing and they look at the, um, you know, replacement value of what they could get um, and they suddenly look at it and say, do I want to really see? So if you, first of all, I don't think you or I can decide structures of industries, including retail, right? I mean, economics will right. decide. <laughs> and so yeah. fundamental thing is, does the guy continue to make money or is it, better for him to become a landlord and rent that space out to somebody else. Um, it'll be interesting to see. It comes down to economics and ambition, like it does almost always. Yeah, I think this is something that, again, we, we're, we've been spending a lot of time trying to understand um, the dynamics at play there. I, I hadn't quite uh, put it together in the way that you just did, uh, but it's something that we've been spending time kind of thinking through. If I was to put the two things that you kind of, you know, you kind of brought out and, and said that, you know, the child, the next generation is willing to sit in the store and the family decides not to sell uh, the land. In that context, um, what are there certain things that perhaps are being done outside India um, uh, for local at local store levels no. to help them sell more or, or, no, or, or do the- more? No, I think the place to look is not outside India. I think the place to look is what's happened with distributors. Because the same thing that we're seeing, the questions we're asking about retailers, one asked about distributors 10 or 15 years ago. And if you look at large companies who continue to have distributors, what have they done? It's quite fascinating that one of the largest FMCG companies had 80 distributors in a city like Bombay. And I think today they have um, I forget, either four or six, uh, but the volume of business that they do in Bombay has uh, gone up four times. So A, you, in, you reduce the opportunity cost for transitioning out by telling the distributor, why are you running a 200 crore shop? You should be running a 2000 crore shop and I will expand your area and give you everything from Kolaba right up to Dadar, which earlier six distributors not used to handle. Now the whole area belongs to you. But... As we do this, you have to invest in technology. You need to invest in proper 
uh, accounting systems. You need to have um, a better quality staff. Um, we need to automate everything. And guess what? We will also take your son and put him through a distributed training program, give him a fancy name and make him feel part of a broader ecosystem. So we've already seen this happen 10, 15 years ago, very quietly. Some of the better FMCG companies have, have already done this. And I think anybody who wants to uh, corral and support the Kirana guys will look at these two factors, the economics of opportunity cost. How do you make him more viable and how do you reduce the risk of his business as his um, cost of inputs are changing? The biggest one of which is his people cost, right? And the category mix. And how do you make it exciting for the next gen to feel proud of doing this business rather than being apologetic? So there are answers. And I don't think the answers are... In, in China or Indonesia, because those countries have very different structures. Uh, the answer right. might lie in India. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about boards. Uh, and, and you obviously have a tremendous amount of experience and exposure uh, being uh, as independent board directors. Um, we come from an industry uh, where, you know, an ecosystem, let me say, um, where most people that sit on boards are there by virtue of putting money in the company, um, in, in the startup space. Uh, and a, as much as there is an allocation for board seats, um, most founders, uh, until very much later in, in their, in, in their, uh, so the life cycle of their company, don't really put anyone in that seat. It's just kind of allocated, but nothing really happens. So I, I would assume that there are a lot of people that are listening to uh, these podcasts that don't actually have an independent director or a director outside of a financial, uh, someone who's uh, investor uh, as a director. Um, I wanted to kind of see if you could give some advice on how one should go about looking for an independent director, uh, finding the right fit and, and what that process might look like um, uh, for people have, who have never done it before or and have businesses that definitely need them, but are really getting advice purely from people that are, that are financial investors? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's very critical to decide when. Um, in my experience, um, founders go through three phases. The first phase is when you are the engine. You're driving everything. At this point in time, the only thing that matters is to fine-tune yourself um, and in a lot of places, this is about product market fit. At this point in time, you don't need too much of advice. Um, then you become somebody who's repairing the engine. Uh, you're still part of the system. You have three, four guys or 10 people or 20 people starting to work in one place. The playbook is still not there, but you're still in the mix and you're still learning. Most people, even at this stage, don't necessarily need uh, somebody who's stepping back and asking them, um, questions about perform not just performance, but health. But there does come a time when you become the engine designer um, and somebody else is now the engine. And at usually at this time, I see two questions um, coming up. One is, you know, a lot of stuff that you used to do easily has become complicated. You've hired these big guys from large companies and they have their own ways of working and you're pulling your hair saying, but I could have done this in one week. Why is it taking you 30 days? And then you find that people are making the same mistake again and again. Stuff that you had done two years ago in one city, you find that in as the new city is being opened, people are making the same mistakes and there's been no institutional memory. So one, you start finding friction in the business and stuff that you took for granted was not there. The second thing is, uh, and this somebody, a founder told me, you start having very strong points of view and a man or a woman with a strong points of view is a dangerous man. So at this point in time, I think some founders say, hey, listen, we want, um, we need help. We need help around three things. How do you scale up? How do you think? Because if you look at scaling up, scaling up is about um, designing, standardizing, replicating playbooks, except that in India, you realize it's so heterogeneous, that you have to cluster markets and you rarely have one playbook. You have multiple playbooks and you version control them because every six months they change. So 
how do you build an organization that knows how to scale sustainably is one question that arises the second question that arises is how do i bring all these people from many different uh places all of who are very skilled but i don't trust them the way i trusted my dorm mate or my co-founder um and when they tell me but this is how you do things in larger companies how do i know when they are when it's a sign of low aspiration and how do i know it's a sign of deep maturity so how do i build a team out of uh, groups of people and the third one is how do i debias the organization um against my own biases uh, myths that i have started believing in because i'm reasonably uh, successful and <laughs> i've raised a ton of money so if these are the kinds kinds of questions that surface when you're drunk or when you're unable to sleep in the middle of the night it might be a good time for you to say hey i need somebody who understands me but is an outsider and with whom i can bounce off stuff to make my team more effective so how do you find these guys i think a lot of this is about chemistry and so i i think most of the time you find it through word of mouth you might have a funder who you really trust amongst a whole line of people lineup of people and you might he might know people or you might have a fellow funder or a fellow dorm mate uh, who knows somebody so in my experience and again this is just one person's biases again in my experience a lot of these relationships are trust based and chemistry based because there is no right answer i mean this is not a physics or a ai test with one answer and and if you have to trust somebody's judgment then you've got to trust the human being and if you have to trust the human being then beyond credibility which the person i'm assuming will bring it's really about whether you see a lack of self orientation which means this person is thinking about you and not about himself and there's a certain level of mutual respect and um and intimacy um in the sense of knowing how you think and how the other person thinks so i think these are chemistry trust based relationships and often you stumble upon the person and um sometimes you have to kiss many frogs before one of them turns out to be a prince so don't be in a rush work with the person and see um if you find somebody that will be part of your journey for the next couple of years oh that's really thank you so much you know i think that's a great note to kind of uh close this out on uh i think we could have four more ongoing podcast just with you just to kind of get deeper into some of this stuff because it's it actually really is exciting and it's really interesting to kind of get points of view uh um from from exposure and experience in the, in the field um over such a long period of time thank you for inviting me this was great fun great thank you so much look forward to speaking again thank you yeah. thank you